welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. Hello, Jörg. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure and an honor to participate in one of your podcasts. Um, I will be interviewing you, Jörg, for the next 20 minutes or so. My name is Stephanie Fremovich-Hess. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. I'm a sociologist by training, and I lead VER, a global diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting practice. I have 12 years of working experience in this field, and I've been working in France, the US, Malaysia, and Chile, where I'm from. And here in Chile, I teach in a business school in two executive education programs around this topic. And uh, York, even though you might not be aware, you've been my hero, mentor, and source of inspiration during these past eight years, the time that we've met for the first time. And you've supported me with lots of time and good professional advice every time I've had a challenge. Um, so it's very special to me to be the person interviewing you um, in one of your podcasts. So thank you very much for this invitation. And here we go. Great. So York, tell us, what do you do? <laughs> well, I've been thinking, I mean, I knew that you would ask me this question. So um, I've been thinking a lot about it because the most what I enjoy most about what I do is the variability. Literally, you know, I, I facilitate, I design content, I curate content. I, um, I, I've kind of started this inclusive leadership institute as a, as a way of bringing all kinds of different activities from learning to consulting to thinking and doing research to writing together and all of these activities that I really enjoy. But if I had to summarize it, I think my work and my focus has always been on generating insights about culture and 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 a culture in the in in the human experience or to the human experience. And taking those insights and helping people apply those insights or create some impact with them. So it's always been around, somehow it's been around culture. It's around helping people understand culture, their own culture, the cultures of others, cultural dynamics better. And turning them into actions or, or impulses to make a change. And that includes, by the way, areas of diversity, equity, inclusiveness. I've worked in that area for um, more than two decades. Um, prior to that, a little bit in the area of intercultural effectiveness, helping organizations to figure out what it what what it means to operate globally or in a global context. And this this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusiveness is is very foundational to my my motivation. But it's also morphed into this focus on inclusive leadership, and that has become. And this is why, you know, I've, I've essentially created the Inclusive Leadership Institute because under this umbrella of inclusive leadership, I am able to bring 
um, a lot of different topics and different aspects of my interest, um, you know, together and 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 organize it in a way that hopefully helps make a positive change in the world. Yeah, and you're kind of partially asking my second question, that is the why, right? Like, what? why do you do that? And why has this become the focus of your work, your life, etc.? Yeah, and <laughs> that's, that's also a, a great question. Now I'm struggling with how far back to go, but I do need to go actually far back because for most of us, what we do is rooted in who we are. And and the circumstances of our upbringing, of the choices that we make in life. And um, that's why also in these these podcasts that, that, that I've done with faculty members, if you will, of the Inclusive Leadership Institute recently, um, that, that, that's been an important question to ask, right? Why do you do what, what you do? And I'll, I'll answer it for myself by going back you know, I mean, to to how I grew up and the the circumstances of my upbringing. So, as you can tell, and you know, of course, um, I'm I'm from Germany. I grew up in 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 Germany um, in the well. I mean, I was born in 1965, so I grew up. I mean, I was shaped by the 70s and certainly the 80s in Germany. And there are a couple of interesting things about this. Um, on one hand, Germany was still, you know, especially through the education system, uh, wrestling with the aftermath of the Holocaust. And to me, in a sense, this was the first impulse to focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusiveness, even though back then nobody used these, these words. But, but look, stepping back and looking at it now, this gave me kind of a real reason to stimulate reflection, introspection, and just thinking about what does it mean to be German in, in the post-World War II environment? And how do we turn this kind of historical sense of guilt into a constructive energy? And, and to me, this is actually a really, really important foundational motivational question. What is the response coming emerging from a history like that with with our education system making sure that we 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 understand the history and the the burden and the responsibility the I would say from a German perspective the unique burden and responsibility that that engenders and what do we do with that constructively and so I've, I've thought about these questions very early you know at least what I consider early in my high school years. Um, this is also, by the way, when we, when I first, um, you know, learned about the Milgram experiment um, or the blue eye, brown eyes, Jane Elliott. The, these are all things that were part of our high school curriculum, and and so 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 this was actually really powerful. But there were some other things happening at the same time as well. This was also the period of time when the children of what what in german would have been called gastarbeiter the 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 guest workers that came usually from turkey uh some from greece um italy as well some from spain uh but primarily turkey you know were um almost corded to come to germany to fill labor shortages 
And what, of course, you know, many people assumed, I mean, it's even in the, in the, in the word guest worker. These are workers that are coming and they're guests. So they're not, the expectation was not necessarily that they would stay or that they would bring their families and make Germany their home. And in that, there was already this, this, a a dilemma of belonging. Today, we would put the lens of belonging over it. Who belongs? What is our expectation about migration? Um, who, you know, identity, you know, all of these things, all of of this religious diversity was, was, you know, came to Germany, uh, through this. And so, so we experienced the children of these guest workers to come into the high school. And so I saw, and this was really, this was a really groundbreaking insight for me. I would literally come out of a history lesson where we learned about the social dynamics that led up to the Holocaust and that made the Holocaust work and immediately fall into similar patterns when it came to the the Turkish guest workers. I mean, there were only about, I think, three in my class at this time, but treating them, how we would talk about them, how we would view them. And I thought, this is incredible in a way, right? Here we are learning about the, the dynamics that lead to persecution and extermination, some of the most horrific um, experiences in history. And and here, and, and with the slogan, beware of the beginnings, which is a very important kind of slogan at this time, you know, um, and here we saw the beginnings of something, right? And and it was was this 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 gap, this gap between, um, it's, it's, I guess, cognitive dissonance, you would call it in psychology, that, that was evident. And I, I sat with that. And then I decided that I need to do something about this. And I started a little initiative, only three other <laughs> students helped me, or, or fellow students helped in that. And it was really an initiative to cultivate intercultural understanding cultivate, uh, reflect on what integration really means. All of these words were used back then. But ultimately, it was all about inclusiveness um, and inclusive leadership, even though those words were not available to me. So that's a that's that's at the very, very foundation of my um, of my interest. And there is one other element, and I'm sorry if this is a bit long winded, but you know, I, I think I had very good teachers when I thinking back. And what I also learned in in history was was the history of colonialism. Because when you when you wrestle with German history and the history of the Holocaust, one thing that 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 emerges very strongly is the ideology of race and racialized identity. Because that's that's that was the if you will, the trick to insinuate to quote-unquote Germans that Jews were somehow a different category of human, right? And the dehumanization that happens through and, and, and through artificially created categories of race um, was really, this. how this works psychologically was was phenomenal. And then, of course, when you read into European history and you study that a little bit, all of that was already part of the discussion in, in my high school. 
um, you know, that you, you then understand that these racialized categories and slavery was all justified through um, these socially constructed um, manipulations of the mind um, that makes something that is incredibly artificial and beneficial to only a small group of people, in this case, people that looked like me, um, that that but that really benefited that group and exploited and justified the exploitation of so many others. And I think that awareness, you know, came really early uh, for me in high school and, and it never left me. It was always the, it was my motivation to say, what can I study that where I understand this better? And then I, I decided to study three things. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not, I'm, I never made it easy for myself, but, um, I studied psychology, philosophy and anthropology because I decided somehow in my own thinking that it is the combination of those three in which there we find wisdom and actionable insights. Not, not in either one. I then decided to really focus on anthropology and make that my primary primary focus um, because I thought anthropology was best positioned, you know, to actually illuminate a little bit the, 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 the dynamics and the cultural variability and the context dependency of our cognition and our behavior as human beings. And, um, that's why I ultimately studied anthropology and, and I, and that lens of anthropology just never left me. It's everything I do is somehow filtered through the lens of anthropological either perspectives or tools or methodologies. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think what you're talking about your why because you were part of the privileged group, and I think that's still the the big challenge in the DEI space, right? To how can we bring more people that have actually the the power to say there's something wrong going on, and and what can I do for others and not just for myself, right? Yeah, and therefore also for myself, right? I don't think that it's 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 such a clear distinction, which is sometimes what 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 worries me about some of these concepts in the in the D and D and I, like the 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 idea of allyship or 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 so. Not that these are inherently bad concepts, but they, I think they ha- they can have an undertone of that the the uh, benefit, the, you know, that there is a clear action towards benefiting others when in fact it benefits everyone. This idea of privilege I've wrestled with as well because, again, I mean, when I, I mean, all of these elements were present when I grew up and in my consciousness, but I, I, I didn't use these words or I didn't, didn't have those words back then. Um, I, I know, I just know how. I mean, just just literally lying in bed. I'm an only child, I have to say. So I spend a lot of my a lot of time with myself and in my head. But um, you know, feeling lucky. I wouldn't call it privilege, but feeling lucky and at the same time guilty, and at the same time as I as I traveled and spent time in other cultures, also not so privileged. You know, because 
when you know and 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 as an anthropologist I, I i spend some time for example in in yucatan in 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 mexico or actually i need to say in 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 yucatan because the the local the perception of local people of yucatan is not is not that they are mexican right so but but you know, among the maya village uh, villagers and you know i traveled around you know latin america and asia and and so forth and very often i felt like Oh my God! I mean, there are traditions, there are communities that have a richness in their social structure and in their experience of life that I somehow don't bring. Yes, I bring material wealth, and I bring. I'm I'm a representative of a very dominant and powerful system that that encroaches on on the world and exploits the world in a certain sense, but. I'm missing a lot of aspects that that are present in other cultures, and so I, I, I there's something that tells me this: we we shouldn't use this idea of being privileged lightly. Yeah, and I, and I think there's something that you said earlier about it's not just helping others; it's also like focusing on the collective good or or what's good for everyone. It's also good for myself. It's good for myself. It's good for all of us in the end when we when we wrestle with these questions and when we treat each other as carriers of wisdom and of of aspects of capabilities of perspectives that the others are missing. And this is essentially when you look at the world today, you can look at what can you learn from other traditions and other cultures and other other ways of being, if you will. How can that enrich me and how can my way of experiencing enrich others? And we need to do this mindful and consciously of power structures, of course. But we shouldn't assume that, you know, it's simple, you know, it's nuanced, it's complex, it sits in its own um, context. And we need to create that context as well. And we can't just simply assume I'm privileged, uh, others aren't. You know, without, you know, understanding the context. In some contexts, my privilege matters more than in other contexts. And in some ways, I am not privileged. And in some contexts, my lack of privilege uh, matters as well. Or, you know, so it's, it's to me, the world is highly situational and contextual, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How can we actually take all this wisdom and, and these ideas that are very maybe vague or general, right, to some actionable takeaways from this experience that you're mentioning? Yeah, this is, <laughs> I find that if you're able to really engage people around thinking about how they're perceiving the world and opening up to other ways of maybe looking at the world or perceiving something that that is incredibly actionable and the importance of that is 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 you know it, it to me is very actionable i know that it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria of actionable ability in many business environments for many people actionable things are things they can do but for me oftentimes the real change happens when we 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 find pathways to being different being different in relationship with others 
um, connecting differently, you know, transforming how we think and how we relate. Um, that to me is perhaps the most actionable um, element that that doesn't usually get focused on as an action. <laughs> you know, transformation is a change of who we are. And inclusive leadership for me, or the pursuit of inclusive leadership, is ultimately transformational to who we are as individuals, as organizations, as societies even. And, and to me, that's the most actionable thing of, of all. And we, we can't do that without shifting perspective. And, and, and sometimes it's called awareness and people don't give a lot of attention or, or thought to what awareness really means. To me, awareness is really consciousness. And a lot of the work that I do is about questioning and elevating or, or developing consciousness. And, and not from the perspective of that somehow I feel that my consciousness is so, so terribly developed, but it's more thinking about that, that, you know, all of our conscience and consciousness needs to be developed. And we need to support one another in that. And that's what I see as core in the Inclusive Leadership Institute. What worries me sometimes is that the idea of inclusive leadership is treated as if it were, you know, already pre ready baked, right? There's inclusive leadership and there's other types of leadership. And I don't think that's true. I think inclusive leadership is a paradigm of leadership that is only slowly emerging, that's unfinished. And that's what intrigues me about it, because, you know, there, there is a lot of work to be done to bring this paradigm to life, make it real, differentiated from other ways of thinking about leadership and, and crystallizing and practice, putting, putting it into practice as a uh, shifting of consciousness and leading from a different level of consciousness. And that consciousness has everything to do with understanding who we are in history, what we symbolize in history, um, finding agency that benefits others and benefits all of us ultimately as we are tackling really big and significant challenges in this world, challenges that we haven't really had to face um, as humankind, right? We, we had to face some of them in isolated ways in our cultural histories. And that's what where we need to go to learn about these things, right? For example, when it comes to the, the, the climate crisis we are all facing, we should look at the Easter Islands. I mean, <laughs> you're in Chile. So this is a, this is probably a really good, good geographic reference. But, but if we want to understand what the true risk that we are facing in this climate crisis and the nature of human-created environmental change, which, which is nothing new in, in ecology or, 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 or so, we, we should look at what happened to the, to the inhabitants of the Easter Islands and, and that historical, um, you know, context. And, and, and we, can, we can learn some really great lessons there. Yeah, I love that historical perspective that you're putting to, to what's happening today, right? Because we tend to forget that the human history is long and we've been struggling and battling through things again and again, right? Like this racism that you're mentioning and the, how to transform guilt into something actionable. I think there are solutions in history that I think now with 
with the maybe insane amount of information, having the curated lens that you're offering, um, to me is so, so important, right? Because we tend to forget actually what has happened in history and, and the things that have been useful to solve those crises. Yeah, the things that have been useful and the things that have not, right? The, the issues, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, what, what is so important in what you said, this idea of a curated lens, um, because we are swimming in information and we're swimming in data. And in fact, we're we are compiling more and more data. But what do we do with this data? How do we interpret it? How do we use it um, to inform our decision-making? How do we make sure that it improves things, right? And and isn't just a, a, a one cycle of reactive um, reactiveness that we are we are in, in, engaging in. So with with more information, with more data, with more insights, we need a curated lens on how we interpret and how we make sense out of all of that. And that needs to be done with certain principles. And, and um, that's where, again, it leads me back to inclusive leadership, because the human history gives us multiple examples of divisiveness uh, and, and divisiveness and polarization. And, um, and, and we can't afford to be divisive and polarized in tackling uh, the next level challenges that we are facing. And we need to overcome the, the legacies of division and polarization. And again, that's where we can look into history. Where can we learn something about that? Well, for example, we could look at South Africa as a really interesting example, and especially truth and reconciliation, how South Africa approached this. And we could learn those lessons and import them um, into other cultural environments where that is direly needed or will be necessary, such as currently in, in what's happening in the Ukraine. You know, so, so we, we can treat the diversity of historical experiences around the world as, as a repertoire of solutions to very human problems. You know, if you want to learn something about innovation and ingenuity, go to what a, a terrible term that I really don't like, but, but look at what many developing nations have done and people in developing nations have done under severe resource constraints. The innovation that flourishes, even in small ways in under those conditions, it's amazing. So we can learn something about what does it take uh, around innovation. If we want to learn about resilience, well, resilience, sometimes it seems like you know, a buzzword and, and all of a sudden companies are, are discovering these words like agility or resilience or so. But, you, you know, there are populations in the world that have had, that had to be extremely resilient throughout history. So what can we learn from, for example, the, from Indian culture around resilience? Um, what can we learn about African cultures around resilience? What can we learn about Jewish culture? around historical resilience and how can we inform and augment and strengthen our own cultural environments with those learnings and insights. And I, I think we haven't really even started to treat human diversity as a repertoire of, of wisdom 
and solutions to um, a, a whole host of problems. I, I love this combination of cross-pollinization yeah. <laughs> that I think you're trying to write to um, describe and at the same time to give voice to people on the ground that own these ideas or that, you know, because I feel this support, this network of support that you have in what you're trying to create is also very diverse from different parts of the world, right? So you're also giving voice to people that can explain deeper and uh, with all the complexity that it deserves, right? So I think it's an amazing balance between these two objectives that um, I find it fascinating personally. Well, you know, thank you for, for resonating with that. And for me, this is only the starting point because, for example, vo voices of indigenous populations need to be elevated and explored, right? That's that's under underexplored, I, I believe, right? But then we also need to, you know, I've already, if you looked at the lineup, especially for the the, the first, you know, series of, of what we do at the Inclusive Leadership Institute, we tackle so many different topics, you know, from power to people with disabilities, which, by the way, is also something that is anchored in my in my past very personally. Um, I am a conscientious objector to the military service in Germany, which was compulsory when I was growing up. And and I spent two years in, you know, assisting, um, you know, people with 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 physical disabilities, and navigate the world. And and not only was this one of the most impactful experiences I've had, but it's it it also demonstrated the enormous bias and um, lack of opportunities for people with disabilities. So we talked about this a little bit in the first series. We talked about. Um, you know, language, English, you know, both of us are non-native speakers of English here, and we're using English as the medium to have this conversation. And this, to me, is an underappreciated um, element that the world, in a way, is using English increasingly, and that favors native speakers a little bit, and doesn't non-native speakers. And and even if your English is fairly good and you're, you're relatively fluent, you still navigate as a non-native speaker this interesting intersection between language or English and culture and, and oftentimes leadership or management, given whatever role you have in your organizations or what you do. And there isn't a lot of attention being placed on, 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 where, on the point where these three elements come together. Because it's in it's in those intersections that careers are made and opportunities are created, or not, right? So so that's an important thing to focus on a little bit. Um, and we focused on 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 so many other elements around psychological safety, um, around belonging, um, around power and the use of power, um, negotiation. Um, so, 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 and we will continue that exploration, especially around uh, gender and gender identity. That's something that that we'll focus on more, and any other socially constructed categories with which we other ourselves and others, and we slice up the social world and create really painful realities as a result. Wow, <laughs> um, it's I think an amazing. Uh, presentation to get to know you a little bit, York. Um, 
I have many other questions um, that maybe are more focused into the actional. How do you actually turn these into this gain of consciousness and the, the tactical examples, right? Of of how can this be applied in an organization? Yes. A huge variety of organizations, right? Is there any story that we're missing that are, is very impactful in, in your career? Because you mentioned a couple, right? That really shaped why you do what you do and the way you work, right? Is there any other story or life experience that you would like to share? There are so many stories, actually, when I think about it. And, and it's always it's always the balance, you know, what, what story um, is most impactful. But I think the, the story that I can tell most authentically is maybe my own story. And I always find find myself conflicted around this. And I'll, I'll tell two, two quick stories. The first is, as I was growing up, and I described this a little bit, um, I also struggled significantly with, with, I mean, today we would call belonging, right? I was harassed and teased a lot as a, as a, at the same time that I was going through my school years. Um, I, and I never felt very, very much that I was part of um, my 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 social group in a in a sense, or the people that I that was interacting with, and there were very big differences in, that I encountered early on. Like I was never interested in soccer or football. I mean, whatever you want to call it, like a lot of the these stereotypical male activities or male ways of bonding and identifying, um, I couldn't relate to, and. My way of doing this was different from how other people have dealt with this. And I, I, I did not um, assimilate in a certain sense. I didn't just pretend to like these things. And to, in order to be accepted, I actually used it as a, a, as a, as a sense that I, of authenticity, of really saying, okay, this is me. And, you know, live with it. I have to live with it. Other people have to live with it. And I never made big attempts to fit in or to um, to fit into these, these stereotypes. This is actually interesting when um, one of the people on, on our team told me that um, when I show up, I mean, today, I'm, I'm representing the stereotypical middle-aged white male that people are, are talking about so often. And she, and she was basically talking about what what it means to her when I visually show up this way. I mean, in meetings, being being myself, you know. And I've become a symbolism. If people don't know me too well, I've become a symbolism of the normative power, you know, in in society and organizations. And I've never perceived myself that way, you know, because also mentally I was. I was in a different space around all these topics and 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 thinking about this, but I never personalized it to that level. And when I then became aware that what I might represent visually to people, um, and the big gap to my what I feel on the inside and what is happening on the inside and my own struggles with gender identity, for example. That to me is probably the most profound ongoing experience that that I le keep learning from on a daily basis. 
<laughs> and and so so it's just to illustrate that I don't think there is a a a singular a story as an event that happened, but the story of my own identity and experience, social experiences that is an un, ongoing story that I learn from and that inspires me. Um, you know, and one of the things that I want to do more of, for example, is is engage in in reflection and 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 uh, for men about what it means to be a man at work, because men usually don't have to think about their gender at work. Women, of course, do all the time, and um, and why not? Why don't we talk about what does it mean to be a man at work and and what is the male experience of work? Because I think only when we really uncover and 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 deepen our reflection can we actually create a more gender inclusive um environment yeah that resonates a lot and and what you were saying at the beginning about this work being contextual and situational right because this identity dissonance or gap that you mentioned i think changes a lot if you are with a group of middle-aged germans in germany right all same gender, all from the same local area, etc. You will feel quite different, maybe, and not perceived that way. Absolutely, on on their side, right? But if you move then to maybe another context, then those other characteristics become quite salient, right? Absolutely, and and that's why this is so situational and contextual. I have to say that. I struggle the most with identity when I am among German males, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> which is actually, which might seem, seem, you know, curious to some, but it's given, given kind of my background and my experiences, that's probably, probably makes sense. But those are precisely the dynamics. I mean, but when we are willing to disclose those things and connect with each other around these, these insecurities and our our own evolving identity, then then we actually build much deeper connections and relationships, which is what it's all about in the end, right? Yeah, yeah. And having vocabulary also to name those dynamics, because I think it's a common experience to have that dissonance maybe with different dimensions or like different sensitivities, right? But that awareness that brings language, I think it's it's very interesting as well. Yes. And that's why we need to, and I'm now speaking about, I mean, and I'm always troubled. I'm, I mean, by nature, I'm probably a rather um, questioning or, or discontent individual because, you know, any discipline that I've worked in, I ultimately took a very critical view of and hopefully constructively critical to move it ahead. For example, in the intercultural field, I never like this strong um, validation of nationality as a as a way to understand uh, cultural diversity around the world. Because to me, nationality is tied to a political boundary system and power uh, dimension, and not necessarily about some you know a cultural unity. You know, when we when we project cultural unity onto a political construct, then then we might make a really bad mistake and we lose nuance. So we need to be very careful with the language that we use and the categories that we use to, to reason. But shifting consciousness means that we shift language. So the introduction of new language needs to also be carefully done. 
And in the DEI space, for example, there is oftentimes, I think, a an imposition of language and words that, it, and we don't pay enough attention to the process of helping people adopt a different language, understand why and what's behind it. We are too often coming from a sense of moral superiority and and ultimately expecting a sense of compliance with certain words or new conventions. And of course, that creates backlash. And and But do we know how to then engage with that bash, backlash constructively? And that's an inclusive leadership skill. Yeah, I think the curated process in, in using certain words and not others is also a skill, right? Yes. It, it might not be visible, but it's a thoughtful skill that I think when you work in a language that it's not your own, I think there's a, a value added in that consciousness, right? Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You know, that is on that sits on top of this, right? So so now we are also doing this in English. Oftentimes we're doing something to people who um, you know, have different types of relationships and comfort level and confidence level in English. And we're not spending enough time in this process of explaining, uh, exploring, um, relating, integrating, internalizing, which is why I think we need to think more like facilitators um, oftentimes in bringing about change. Than um, you, you know, than 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 advocates or um, activists. Right? So, Jörg, uh, why did you decide to create an institute? Hmm. It's a it's a great question, and as you know, I've um, <laughs> I've worked in a number of consulting uh, firms, and why an institute? What I what I've always so so what I've always wanted to do is besides consulting, which I which I really like because it helps it it feeds off my my anthropological training and 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 especially you know doing what I call you know context sensitive consulting. But I thought around this topic of inclusiveness and obviously also the topic of equity, diversity belonging, all, all the things that, that you know, we are encircling here. There is so much, there, there, it's, it's an emerging field of knowledge. It's not, we're not sitting on something that is kind of ready, that is finished or ready baked. And for me, an institute is exactly the type of environment that enables us to do some thought leadership. Yes, to also build solutions, but sometimes this the, the the problem needs to be understood better um, before we build solutions. So um, there is the opportunity for engaging in research and moving um, moving different different fields forward, moving knowledge forward, uh, learning from practice. So I see this institute really as a space, um, which is why <laughs> the logo hopefully looks like a three dimensional space of bringing together practitioner knowledge and practitioner can mean the people with with specific skills oriented practice oriented knowledge academics who are doing interesting research and bring a different experience and a different different way of understanding and relating to a problem and of course leaders in organizations together 
to really shape the emerging knowledge around building truly inclusive environments. And I believe that while we know a lot about it, then we, we are also just beginning to learn, especially when you think about the global scope that we, maybe for the first time in human history, we are looking at a global scope of of building inclusive environments around the full spectrum of human diversity, which is also evolving and is dynamically changing in response to whatever happens in our societies. So, so this is not an this is not a field where we can we can just use existing knowledge and solutions. And I thought that an institute that brings together those different voices different strands of perspectives and tries to make sense out of those things in context sensitive ways was um was what it, what is what is truly needed in this space thanks so much for explaining me this um this question because i find it crucial to understand a little bit in more depth this you know huge project that that you're building um, and that relates to another question, which is why focusing on leadership and not necessarily, for example, culture change as a whole, uh, thinking more broadly in organizations? <laughs> yeah, and and it could have been, right, some sort of a culture change institute, um, cultural transformation institute. But somehow, I mean, I think there is a certain, you know, per personal appeal to the idea of inclusive leadership that I've always felt ever since kind of that that idea emerged in my work. But the 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 real core is the insight that it is leaders who are significantly creating, shaping, changing, maintaining, sustaining culture. There is actually a very close relationship. Culture resides somewhere in the shadow of what leaders do. Leaders cannot not create culture, as I oftentimes say. And and, and leadership is, is distributed in, in an organization as well. It's not necessarily embodied in one person or in a in a in a group of elevated people, which is what people oftentimes think, which is why I'm less focused on inclusive leaders as individuals and more focused on inclusive leadership, which I see more as a process. That's, it's an interaction. It's a relationship. It's not a, um, a set of characteristics of an individual. And we all, to more or lesser degrees, participate in inclusive leadership. Or perhaps we, we it's not inclusive at all. Maybe we are participants in divisive leadership or a polarizing leadership. But leadership is a process and a relationship that we somehow are implicated in, all of us. And the aspiration of making that inclusive, to me, is, is, is really important. So I hope that what the work in the Institute is not just about not defaulting on leadership as or leaders, but as if leaders were resided outside of context, but the process and the dynamics and the relational aspects of of leadership and what makes it inclusive and what doesn't make it inclusive. So there, there's a personal intrigue in this notion. If you think of the work of um, Edgar Schein, 
just around the connection of leadership organizations and culture, um, it's such an important element. And that's the lever of true cultural change or transformation, namely the, the idea of leadership and learning also that true sustained cultural transformation requires inclusive leadership. So to me, it's actually the secret sauce that makes cultural transformation and cultural change work. And in a way, it is a different way of, of um, you know, using the insights that Margaret Mead, an, an anthropologist, articulated, right? That, um, and I'm, I'm butchering her quote right now, but that change in the world has always come about through a small group of committed people. And it is, it is the interaction within that group, however that group exists, and the group within the wider social context that makes social change happen. And so, so inclusive leadership is, is to me an, an aspiration. It's also the secret sauce of, the, of what needs to drive the kind of change that we need at this time in history. That's fantastic, Jörg. So uh, insightful and inspiring at the same time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com.